You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Grace Helbig. This program originally aired in 2016. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today on HBR and the Music Hall present Writers on a New England Stage with Grace Helbig, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. Helbig is everything you'd expect in an internet superstar. She's funny, extremely photogenic, self-deprecating, and little known to people over 30. But that is changing fast. Her YouTube channel had 2.8 million subscribers at last count, and she is one of few YouTube stars to parlay that popularity into success on traditional media platforms. She landed a late-night show on the E! Cable Network. Meet Grace Helbig. She's from the internet, and we gave her a TV show on E! You're a monster! No couch, <laughs> no audience, <laughs> no limits. I just have to run and do a quick thing, and then I'll be back. Super nice guy. Mm-hmm. Just stayed a little too long. <laughs> and her second book, Grace and Style, The Art of Pretending You Have It, is now on the New York Times bestsellers list. Grace Helbig drew a hearty crowd of passionate readers and fans to the music hall, mostly female and mostly teens and 20-somethings drawn to her irreverent take on the unattainable standards upheld in beauty guides and fashion magazines. The book Grace and Style is cheeky and encourages women to embrace their bodies, faces, and own unique sensibility. So when I sat down with Grace Helbig on stage, that's where we began. How about it? Grace Helbig is here, everybody. Well, Grace, you know, one of the things that impressed me about this book, you begin, you say, like, beauty is completely comical. Mm -hmm. But at one point in your life, you took it very seriously. The way that you looked was a real issue for you. Yeah. You um, come out at the beginning of this book and say that you had an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. And so why did you start the book with that? It it felt really necessary. I had written about half of the book, um, and I just wasn't feeling really connected to it. I wasn't feeling really motivated in what I was writing, and it felt really similar to the first book. And I was having a hard time even imagining asking anyone to buy it the way it was. And I went to a tarot card reader, uh, someone that I've gone to a few times now and I really, really love. And uh, she didn't know anything about the book, but I, I asked her to you know, pull a card for it, and the card she pulled, she explained, uh, meant that I would have to pull back a curtain and really expose more of myself or showcase more of myself to get to where I wanted with this piece. And that really resonated with me because I'd always had this thought in the back of my brain that would I ever talk about that time in my life, and if so, when and how, and what would that look like? And I've had every opportunity in hundreds of videos that live on the internet to talk about it, and it just felt really not right or good or positive. And so when I finally sat down with now that thought in mind, I just started writing out my story of it, and it made sense, and it felt right, and it really, to me, gave a lot of context for the absurdity of the book, since beauty is such a personal thing for a lot of us. Our self-image is, you know, defined by ourselves and how we see ourselves. So I really wanted to make sure that I explained my point of view on things so that people didn't feel like I was just some dum-dum making fun of the things that they enjoy in the beauty world. Well, uh, you write that having an eating disorder is like a scar. It never really goes away. But you helped yourself out of it. You, you know, sought help. Mm -hmm. You you said you binged on self-help books and the stories of other other girls. Yeah. um, 
for good and for bad, the internet didn't exist for me at that time the way it does now. Uh, I, I don't, I can't even imagine being a teenager like a lot of you are with Instagram and everything and Snapchat and all of these social media outlets now. I think I'd be really overwhelmed by it. So at that point, to be able to find someone that had a similar thought process to mine or to find someone with a similar story, I had to seek out books from, uh, from bookstores and I would secretly read them to myself just so I would feel not crazy, so I would feel like someone else was having the same thought patterns that I was. And just feeling that connectivity to someone else that you've never met before, that you're just reading their words, was so insanely helpful. I think as human beings innately, we just want to feel connected in some way or feel some sense of community. And so that was really important for me. And that paired with starting comedy classes and improv classes and getting in the world of complete absurdity and really sort of drowning myself in seeing things in a more comedic way really, really helped me out. And I you know, can't thank comedy enough. And I think I've been trying to a lot. <laughs> well, is this in some way a self-help book that you didn't have when oh, you were Oh, absolutely. There? Basically, everything I do is for myself. It's very selfish. <laughs> I think all of the tips in this book are just me talking to myself and giving myself a pep talk, like, don't pack like that, or don't wear that cardboard box again. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, it's all basically a conversation with myself. Well, it's interesting, because you write about uh, that there was this kind of shame spiral that you experienced. Mm -hmm. The weirder your behavior got, the more private you became. Yeah. The more private you became, the weirder your behavior got. And it's interesting because your fame has come from exposing yourself. You know, right. As you said, pulling back the curtain on YouTube, on Tumblr, on Twitter, on Snapchat. So how do you decide what to expose and what not to? That's the hard question is anyone that's going to put themselves out there on the internet in whatever way it is, whether it's entertainment or not, you have to make choices on how much of yourself you're going to put out there because the internet is so readily available for all of us and that's what makes it awesome and that's what makes it really scary because once you put something out there that you didn't want out there, you can't take it back. So I always try to err on the side of caution and I'm a Libra astrologically, so I'm a scale, I'm fair and balanced, and so for me to really maintain a sense of groundedness or sanity, I have to feel balanced in the things that I put offline and the things I put online and have a life for myself that exists off of the internet. Because I am as wildly obsessed as a lot of people are with people that put their whole lives online. I watch reality television because I just want to see the lives of people that live in ways that I can't relate to. Uh, that's why the Real Housewives are just so good. <laughs> Oh, if they only knew. Uh, Sonia Morgan, follow me on Twitter. Uh, and so, for yeah, for me, I've always wanted to put comedy first, uh, but this book felt a little different that I wanted to put personal stuff first and comedy second. Mm -hmm. I'm Virginia Prescott, and you're listening to my conversation with the best-selling author and YouTube star Grace Helbig, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth for writers on a New England stage. Do people assume that they know you? I mean, we've been in your house, we yeah. think, right? Yeah, I mean, I talk about my bowels all the time. <laughs> so I feel like people really know me and a lot more than I know myself, maybe. Uh, 
yeah, that's kind of the really strange thing. And there's always sort of a wave of embarrassment that happens, like a very quick little that happens when someone comes up and says hello to me uh, when I'm out because they've seen a video of mine or whatever it is. Because I, you still don't completely believe that the numbers represent people that watch and that me by myself in my apartments and in college making videos to post on the internet uh, you still don't really completely understand when you click upload that other people that you don't know are watching it. So it's always a little embarrassing at first. It's like, well, my private videos that I put out publicly for everyone to see. Uh, and even it happens with my parents. My mom will be like, so how did your DIY go? And I'm like, how did you know about that? She's like, you videoed yourself going to Michael's and buying a ton of stuff. And I'm like, how did you see that? <laughs> it's, yeah, it's really crazy. Well, when did you realize, when did it go from this, wow, this is fun, you know, this is a great way to get over my introverted self, mm -hmm. to I could really make a career of this? It's interesting. I, it was always a hobby. It was always this really fun thing to do, um, this creative outlet to dabble in while I was in the city post-college auditioning for TV and film, which I thought was the only route you could take in the creative world to get recognition. And once I got approached by a website called My Damn Channel to make a series for them that ended up being Daily Grace, which was five videos a week for a few years, that's when I realized that, that it could be a job. And even in the conversations with my damn channel, one, I couldn't believe that they were actually offering me money in exchange for recording myself being an idiot. That just like could not, I'm like, why did I go to college? Uh, but uh, go, go to college. <laughs> it's really a great experience. Uh, and. On top of that, that still felt to me a little bit like a survival job. I didn't fully understand the YouTube space. Uh, so I was using the My Damn Channel videos at first as a way to keep myself from having to wait tables in the city to try and go on auditions and that sort of thing. And it wasn't until I met Hannah Hart, that I, uh, who's another YouTuber, yay, Hannah! Uh, and she had accidentally fallen into the YouTube space. She was a, a Japanese translator that had a video blow up for herself and then turned that into a career. And because she is so actively asking questions and trying to figure things out, she was learning about the space. And when I had talked to her and she started to explain it to me, I really understood that, oh, this is an environment for entrepreneurs to create creatively without gatekeepers and to independently make things that they own and oh no now I'm owned by a company oh no what am I doing this space wrong and the space just started so uh, I think that was probably like 2011 12 something like that was there always this assumption that it would just be a stepping stone to get to television or film or something Sort of. For me, it was kind of just an outlet to practice funny things that I had in my head and put them out into the world, which is why I was doing improv at the time, was you're just working this muscle so that by the time someone, which at that point I thought someone in the traditional space, chose you to be the funny lead in their movie, you had done all of the, the muscle work that you were ready to go. It was like your Olympics, that you train, train, train in all of these different avenues, and then you wait for someone to put you in a competition and you feel either ready or you don't. And the amazing thing about YouTube was that you could just start competing immediately 
but it's also uh, not even based on competition, which was the other awesome thing about it. It was mm -hmm. like coming from the world of auditioning and walking into auditioning waiting rooms and seeing all these other people that are going up for the same part as you and immediately feeling demoralized by like the quality of person that's there. It's so different on YouTube because it's based on collaboration with each other rather than competition, which is blew my mind and was just such a wonderful philosophy and something I really wanted to put my time and energy into. That is such an interesting thing too because you know you write in the book like most girls that mm -hmm. you spend a lot of time in school trying to make it look like you knew what you were doing, mm -hmm. trying to make other girls think that you knew what you were doing. So yeah. there was this you know sort of level of competition but the shows that you've done you, you've got this posse of girlfriends you know posse of friends not just mm -hmm. women but there's this kind of new model of femalehood and that's not something that we've seen a lot in comedy right. and it's not something we've certainly seen a lot on the internet so was that a conscious move for you to work with to, friends like that well to be to to sort of create a like we're collaborating in this together. It's yeah, not new I think, against the world. I don't think it was uh, conscious. I think it was this natural evolution. Two of my best friends, Hannah Hart and Mamrie Hart, I met Mamrie. Yeah, yeah, Mamrie! <laughs> I, uh, I met Mamrie in 2007 or 2008. We got put on a sketch comedy team together at the theater that I was doing comedy, the People's Improv Theater. And when I had started doing more internet videos, she had an idea for a web series and came to me and we'd been hanging out in Brooklyn because we found out we had lived close by each other. And we did the first episode of You Deserve a Drink, her web series, in my apartment. And then she left all of the alcohol behind. And I was like, this is a great deal. <laughs> Let's make more of these. <laughs> and, uh, and so we just made each other laugh and we had such a great time making things and that happened when we both met Hannah and Hannah came over and we just started hanging out and realized that we had a lot of similar thought processes and a lot of the same senses of humor and we were really inspired by each other and so it just made sense to try and make things with each other and now that we have it feels impossible not to continue making things with them because it's just such a great experience. Well this question came in just as you were answering this. How would you describe your friendship with Hannah and Mamrie? Is there something else you want to add to that? How would I describe the friendship with Hannah and Mamrie? I think it's it's multifaceted because there is a, there's a professional side of the friendship in which we push each other to get solid work done and make sure that we're all on track and complete projects like Camp Dakota and like Dirty 30 and do no filter shows. And then there's a balance in a completely non-professional, just straight up friendship caring about each other on an emotional level. Uh, so it's... It's a really, it's really wonderful, and I think that balance is what makes it uh, such a strong working relationship because we know that we can give each other honest feedback, and we know uh, how to work really well together, and we, we know how to also just hang out with each other, which I think is really important. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is Writers on a New England Stage with Grace Helbig, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth, a co-production of NHPR and the Music Hall. Grace Helbig is one of a number of young female comics who've racked up millions of fans by posting videos of themselves online, usually sitting on a couch, talking. 
sometimes about pop culture, sometimes giving encouragement or advice about fashion or sex or makeup. Second step to dyeing your hair, just letting yourself absorb the fact that you are voluntarily doing this to yourself. You went out and you purchased the color and no one's holding a gun to your head or a feather to your feet. You are responsible. And in one example that went viral, relaying a gastrointestinal mishap of epic proportion. Crude, maybe but never mean. Her new book, Grace and Style, The Art of Pretending You Have It, is in keeping with the online persona that Grace Helbig herself refers to as the Internet's awkward older sister. The book pokes fun at the narrow vision of beauty and style peddled by Madison Avenue and fashion magazines. Here's more of my interview with Grace Helbig in front of a live audience at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. Allie asks, what is it like to know that you're a role model for millions of people? Terrifying. <laughs> Feels great. Um, that, yeah, that's the, the interesting thing that happens when you put yourself out there and people feel inspired by you that with that comes an innate sense of responsibility to that person to not let them down or to continue to build them up in, in some ways. Um, my inspiration, I've I've said before, like, I don't want to be a role model. I don't want to put myself in that position. But whether I want to or not, it sometimes happens. And it's important, I think, to recognize that and to be aware of that because it affects how you present yourself. I take a lot of my inspiration from Tyler Oakley. I think that he's... Yeah, he's just such a great soul, and he's as hardworking as he is humble, as he is kind, and he really presents himself as a role model and takes it seriously, but has a sweet, silly side to him, and I think he's just done such amazing things for a lot of people, and it gives me hope that maybe I'm not the worst. <laughs> well, as a role model for a lot of young women, what are the top three pieces of advice you would give to an aspiring vlogger? Oh, three pieces of advice for an aspiring vlogger. One, just do it. Just start yesterday um, because you're gonna be bad at it. You're gonna be real bad at first. When I look back at my first videos, they're, um, they're not, not good. And so uh, <laughs> you have to give yourself time to grow and to just feel what it's like to make that sort of thing. No one, you know, I, you can't really take a, a class and like a language or learning another language or learning math know exactly how to do it. So it's a really, I think, best learned by experience and really just, just doing it. So that's one. Um, two, uh, find like-minded people to collaborate with. Don't try and collaborate with someone that has 17 million subscribers when you're just starting out. I remember, I learned that the hard way. When I was first starting out in New York, I made videos with my friend uh, Michelle Aiken, and she and I were looking up these YouTubers, and we found Tobuscus, Toby Turner, and on his website, he's this big gamer, funny guy. I, I thought he was one of the funny people on YouTube at that time. And so I was like, oh, well, let's just make a video with him. I'll email him. And he had this business email thing on his website that you could fill out. And I emailed, being like, hi, we make videos. We'd love to shoot something with you. Hit us back. And like, didn't get any response, obviously. And I was so weirded out that he didn't write back. I was like, 
why hasn't this guy contacted us? Like, we're waiting, we don't have all day. And then uh, I realized, like, that's absurd. It's absurd to think that you can collaborate with people that are not on your level. So it's really in your best interest to work with people that are of the same level and have the same passion as you because high tides raise all ships. Um, and three, uh, don't put your nudes out there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Keep all your bits in their boxes. <laughs> it's important. Mm -hmm. We did a segment actually. There's a, a woman, um, Brittany Ashley. She's uh, one of BuzzFeed's. You know, she, she's on their video channels. Um, they've got four of them. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe 17 million subscribers or something. But anyway, she um, was at BuzzFeed's Golden Globes party at uh -huh. this restaurant in LA, and she was there not as a celebrant, but as a server. And people were like, hey, it's so great, you're pretending to be the server. And she's like, no, I'm a waitress. Wow. Like, I have a lot of social media followers, but I can't make a living. Wow. You figured out how to make a living. It's interesting, and I've heard um, a lot of other people talk about this recently, that there is this um, somewhat skewed perception that YouTuber equals millionaire, and it's not true. Um, and I see YouTube not as my full-time job. My full-time job is building my brand, and YouTube is a huge, huge part of that. But that's why, to me, I'm, and I think this is probably where my workaholic-ism is, is good, is that I, I truly believe that this could all go away tomorrow. So I have this need to keep making things wherever opportunities allow me to, i.e. books uh, and movies and whatever else it might be. And so when you see someone with you know a million billion Twitter followers and a million video views, you instantly assume millionaire, but it's not the case and I think because we're starting to learn more about the space, because it's uh, maturing and it's and people are are developing in different ways, we're all learning as entrepreneurs how to expand our brands. And th the great thing I think in the community is that we're able to have conversations with each other and keep each other looped in on on deals that are happening and things that are happening and opportunities that are happening. And that allows us to stay savvy in a business sense. Um, it really, you know, the system, any system rewards people that are smart and savvy and try to figure it out for themselves in the best way they can. And I think it's really important in that way to be self-aware of your shortcomings too and know where you don't know things and work with people or create teams where there are people that do know the things that you don't know. I'm not extremely business savvy. I've learned a lot, but I'm not, you know, at a level where I think... I can independently run a lot of things, so I work with agents and managers that do understand that and understand me and my brand and things I really want to do and where I'm happiest and are able, we're able collectively to create opportunities and projects and things like that. But it's not the same for everyone. Everyone has a different system and a different way to do it. I'm Virginia Prescott, and you're listening to my conversation with Grace Helbig, the YouTube star and best-selling author. We talked in front of a live audience at the Music Hall in Portsmouth for writers on a New England stage. And it's all new. I mean, this yeah. is being created, is kind of you're making the road by walking it, right, on some level. Absolutely. Um, but you, I think especially, this is your second book. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you made that jump from YouTube to television. Very strategic decisions. 
and I'm wondering sure. how, how you <laughs> <laughs> how do you how are you figuring it out? Pretending, <laughs> big time, just okay. pretending. Uh, yeah, I've never had a one-year plan. I've never had a five-year plan. Me sitting here talking about being on YouTube for six years was never part of my plan. I went to college. Why'd I do that? Go to college. <laughs> And so I, I really have internalized a lot of what improv taught me about saying yes to people and things that make sense to me in my world. Camp Dakota was a product of us having meetings with certain people and just floating a conversation by someone about an idea and that someone resonating with that idea completely and had the wherewithal to make it happen. That wasn't anything any of us had planned for that year. Um, same with Dirty 30. So it's, it's a constant evolution. I think for me, I've learned that my process is keeping myself open and not trying to plan anything out to uh, specifically because expectations create a lot of um, disappointment sometimes so um, having low expectations high rewards <laughs> sometimes um, Emily asks what is your favorite thing about being a youtuber and she like many people um, added by the way I love you oh that's very <laughs> sweet um, I appreciate you <laughs> um, What's my favorite thing about being a YouTuber? I think my favorite thing about being a YouTuber is that there really is no monotony. There's nothing, um, one day is never identical to the last day or the next day. And when I graduated college, go to it, I got a job at an office. Uh, I was working in project management at Viacom. Um, and I was working, you know, nine to five, nine to six or whatever in this office space every day. And I was just full of anxiety about it because having that same day in and day out experience made me really um, bummed. And so I opted to wait tables because there was something more uh, interesting in that than working this office job while trying to figure out what I wanted my life to be. And so I, I know that I thrive on that sort of roundabout, uh, not patterned job environment, which is what YouTube offers, which is why I love it so much. I also, I love, I really enjoyed waiting tables uh, and YouTube for the same reason that it really rewards hard work, which I think I, I, I love people that work hard. It's why The Rock and Lily Singh are some of my favorite people because they just, yeah, they, they work so hard. And to me, they are so deserving of all of the success that they get. And YouTube is a, an environment where absolutely you get out of it what you put in. And that's why I love it. What did you wear to the office? What, what's that? What did you wear to the office? Oh, what did I wear? I, I went, okay, when I got this job, <laughs> Uh, I remember feeling so adult that I went to a New York and Company, which is a store for like the professional woman, and uh, they sell a lot of uh, like blazers and, and work pants and that sort of thing. And I bought some of those and I wore them, and they were so ill-fitting, and I felt so dumb and not in the good way dumb uh, when I was wearing them to the office, and it. It just wasn't, all of it was not the best for me. But I love workwear. 
You do? I mean, yeah. Because I was thinking that you must have, you know, YouTube, part of the appeal must be that you could wear sweatpants. Oh, big time. Yeah. My favorite thing about YouTube is that you get to be like a human mullet. You dress up from the waist up and then from the waist down, it's party, 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 work on top. <laughs> it's like my favorite thing. It's really great. And no one knows. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is Writers on a New England Stage with Grace Helbig, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth, a co-production of NHPR and the Music Hall. Grace Helbig has become a reliable, goofy, and imperfect companion to millions who know her through the thousands of videos she's posted online, mostly watched on their phones. It's a relationship of transparency and approachability that inspires a loyal fan base and a connection almost unimaginable in media even a decade ago. Whereas once it was assumed that having a TV show or talk show was the end goal for a comic or an aspiring actor, Grace Helbig doesn't need all that. She's got fans, lots of them. We saw them lined up, snaking around the aisles at the music hall, waiting, not for an autograph and a book, but for a selfie with Grace Helbig. Here's the rest of my conversation with Grace Helbig, which included several questions submitted by the audience at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. Let's see. Oh, I love this. How can I effectively explain what a YouTube star is to someone over the age of 50? Oh, okay. Um, I like to say digital entrepreneur. <laughs> That's really... It's a... Uh, uh, it's, it's, it's slightly difficult to describe what a YouTuber is. I, I mean, it's um, someone that is, for the most part, a personality online that creates short-form creative content. Um, is this person your parent that you're trying to explain it to? Just say, like, um, a more educational form of pornography. That's what YouTube is. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> there's this thing, you know, this is often talked about, this kind of construct of, like, there's old media and there's new media. Mm -hmm. And this is something that really came to a head last summer. This was around the time of the uh, Teen Choice Awards. Yeah. And E, on mm. your network, but yeah. E Online, they kind of put their foot in it. What'd they do? There was a tweet thing that went around, well, there was an article written about the Teen Choice Awards in which um, the premise of the article was that the person writing it felt old because they didn't know this, that, and the other about the Teen Choice Awards, including who was invited, a lot of um, digital entrepreneurs. And so uh, I think Tyler Oakley made a remark that, you know, this doesn't reflect well on your brand. You are the entertainment channel. Um, this is a major form of entertainment. Maybe knowing about it is good. And then there was, uh, there was kind of a dismissive back and forth that was just sort of unfortunate. And it's always difficult because, you know, we as digital entrepreneurs are representing ourselves by ourselves. Our brand is built by ourselves. And something like E that has hundreds of employees is a brand built by a lot of people doing a lot of different things. And so it was just one of those bummer moments where everyone that had worked on my show and everyone involved at E that was involved in my show was the best and the most supportive and championed the internet and really gave me complete creative freedom to do what I wanted 
in this space of a show and I couldn't say enough good things about them. And then this happened in a completely different branch of E and had nothing to do with any of the people that worked on my show and gave me the green light to do it. But it reflected on the whole company overall, this sort of negative opinion that they were presenting about the YouTube space. And so it was one of those moments where you were just like, ah, oh, this looks so bad to everyone out there, but uh, I can't, I don't have any control of the situation. It's like when your parents do something so embarrassing and you're in front of your friends and you're like, oh my God, <laughs> I can't explain to my friends that you're like super cool at home and we're playing like Catan or whatever. But you just, I don't know, made this weird joke during the soccer game and now I can't take it back. What, what about that difference, though, in making the, um, the YouTube show? Because, you know, in many ways, they're very the same. You know, it's kind of you on a couch often mm -hmm. uh, with your guests, great guests, and, and, and talking to the camera. Mm -hmm. um, but obviously, a lot of crew, you know, yeah. a much bigger set. So, so what is about that experience for you? How different was that being in the, uh, the E! television series compared to the YouTube space series? It was really, it was really different. And it didn't hit me until the first day I walked into the house that we were shooting out of. We had rented this house out for the season and tried to decorate it so it looked uh, like I actually lived there. Spoiler, I didn't, not my house, <laughs> um, which some people thought. And I was like, really? You think I decorate that well? <laughs> There's gummy bears on the wall in this room. Um, and so I remember walking in and thinking, oh my God, everyone that's here, every crew member, every producer, every cameraman is here because of me whoa, this is a lot of pressure. Maybe I should have brushed my hair today to give them some sort of leadership in some way. And that was something to get used to, was feeling like a leader, feeling like uh, you were navigating this ship that everyone there was waiting for your commands on how to row the boat. And you're like, um, to the right? I don't know. And so uh, and I'm so used to just being by myself creating ideas. And so any dumb things I do or say don't matter because there's no one there to make me embarrassed by them. Uh, but that said, it was a really brand new form of collaboration for me of working with uh, friends and, and new friends that loved what I was doing online and really wanted to expand it and explore it and try and build something that no one had really seen on television. And overall, it was a full experiment. It, I think that's what's happening with a lot of content. It's just the constant experimentation of what is it? How do you watch it? What, what does it look like? How long does it last? And, uh, and that's what it was. It was a piece of spaghetti that we threw against the wall to see if it stuck. And uh, it, it fell off the wall after a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, even when um, E made that bungle, I mean, your, your fans completely had your back. Yeah it, was, it was, yeah, it was crazy because it became, out of my hands, it was something that became this like um, dispute of team internet versus like team E and it was, it, it was really interesting to watch and it got, there were so many YouTubers responding to it that I didn't really realize um, how big it ended up and it, that's one of the cool things about the internet space is that it's kind of like this digital gang in a way where everyone's like got each other's backs like really nerdy bloods and crips <laughs> and um, 
And so um, I just hope that, you know, E had a learning curve about it. And I don't think there was any bad blood between people at all. I think it was just one of those moments, especially because the Internet moved so fast that it was like shuffled under a rug within eight hours because something else happened. But Team Internet is also a pretty fickle punch, right? You know, they can they can come and go or be yeah. on your side. or They can be a crip or a blood at any given time. I think it's because there's been such... There's been such a an amount of looking down on the community and looking down on the content of the internet by a lot of traditional media outlets that there is this need to defend and need to, in this sensitivity about proving that we have value, proving that the space is the future. And I think it's starting to decrease a little bit um, I think in all of us that we just sort of know that this is the future and know that what we're doing has value. And now, like the tweet I sent out, it's embarrassing when traditional media doesn't know and when they do try and belittle it in any way because it's just, that's not helpful to anyone. And it seems very obvious that it comes from a place of fear and a place of feeling threatened. And rather than what they're used to competing with the internet, it serves them best to collaborate with the internet and to build up what people like Tyler Oakley and Miranda Sings uh, are doing rather than try to put them down because they haven't heard of Makeup by Mandy. Mm. Uh, and it's also, yeah, it's just uh, one of those tacky moments where you're like, that's not a good look for you, E. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Virginia Prescott, and you're listening to a special edition of Word of Mouth. Today, YouTube star and best-selling author Grace Helbig recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth for writers on a New England stage. But I guess I want to get more to that uh, relationship between you and um, your viewers, mm-hmm. people who love you, you know. Um, what do you think that's about? What do you think that bond is? No one has been talking about diarrhea as much as I have, so maybe that's the thing that makes me relatable. Well, who are they? Who are who is your audience? It's these people. It's it's the, the you got yeah for you. Good job. You guys have great taste. <laughs> uh, I think it's. You know, I I watch as much YouTube as I make, and so I know for myself that the people I watch are usually people that have an interesting point of view, have a similar sense of humor to me, and have a genuineness about who they are that feels so unedited in a highly edited way that I can't help but relate to them and be entertained and uh, curious about them. I mean, yeah, the amount of times I've gotten into like Instagram K-holes of looking someone up because I thought they were interesting is very embarrassing. Um, But it's also part of my job. How I rationalize that. Uh, Yeah, it's, I think, you know, the word authenticity gets thrown around so much on the internet. Um, but it's true that the more yourself you are, the more relatable you'll be to someone because humans, turns out, have similarities with other humans. <laughs> We're all trying to get through this weird <laughs> storm together. <laughs> and so when someone has a point of view that you relate to, I think it, being able to communicate through the internet has, has made that really a cool thing. Mm. Well, a lot of them are young women, not mm-hmm. exclusively, certainly. Um, a lot of teens. 
Um, and I wonder, at 30 now, mm -hmm. do you feel like this audience is going to move along with you? Or, you know, do you pass the torch? Don't mind me. I'm just going to talk about you in front of you. <laughs> <I'm> sorry. <Okay. laughs> Um, no, I, I hope so. I think that there is a, there's definitely, a, you know, you hope that someone grows with you, but if they grow out of you, it's completely understandable because I myself, looking at the content that I've created over time, it evolves, it changes as I evolve and change as a human being. And I know a lot of YouTubers uh, talk about this, and it is something that is kind of scary sometimes when you feel like you are changing because change is scary for an audience who can't live inside your head with you and understand why you're changing or how you're changing and anticipate it. So there is a, there's always that moment of fear of, but if I change or my content changes, people aren't gonna like this, but they're gonna like you. And being open and honest about that, I think is, is important. And because it's still such a new platform, the patterns of audience retention, I don't think truly exist enough for us to be able to predict what's gonna happen. So the only thing you have left at the end of the day is yourself to go with. All right, so I'm gonna ask you about you again. Okay. Um, Emma, in fact, is asking you this because she loves you. Okay, I appreciate um, you. Who was your biggest inspiration growing up that helped you become who you are today? Whoa, deep. Uh, um, comedically, I was really inspired by Amy Poehler and Tina Fey. And um, yeah, they're great. They're just good people. Um, and I just want them to hang out with me. Uh, and then also, I love Lisa Kudrow. And I think that she's a really underrated comedic actress and Phoebe was a real subconscious influence on a lot of what I do. Um, I think that I have a real relationship with the flightiness that, uh, that she exudes. And so those were really, really big and, and powerful influences in college for me when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, Another big influence was um, a guy that I dated in college that I mentioned in the book that helped me really come out of the, the patterned interior monologue I was having about having an eating disorder. Um, and we dated for like four years and it, we still talk about how that time in our lives was really important for both of us to kind of uh, support each other in getting into the fields of interest that we had. And he's doing psychology and that sort of thing still, and I'm doing comedy and that sort of thing still. And so it was a, you know, they say that there are people that come into your lives for certain periods of time because that's what they're supposed to do. It's necessary. It's like um, soulmates aren't necessarily meant to be in your life for your whole life. And that was definitely one of those people that I am so thankful for. All right, this is definitely deep. Okay. What's your favorite emoji and why, uh, asks Erin. Okay, Sheesh. Um, my favorite emoji is this one. It's the one, or it's this one. You have to describe for the radio audience. For the radio audience, it is the one where it's gritting its teeth, um, but its eyeballs are really big, like, oh no. Um, that one is really great, because it's, uh, it, it's basically like the emoji version of you grabbing your collar and going, ooh. Uh, <laughs> And then the other one is the one with the same grit teeth mouth, but like happier looking eyes. So it's like too excited, but still like, oh, I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, that's mine. You do have to play the game on some level, right? You mm -hmm. go to red carpet events mm -hmm. and you write about this in the book. What do you call it? Um, it's comically degrading. 
Yes, it is. It's yeah. funny and mortifying. It really Wh is. Why? Because, I mean, at least when you make YouTube videos and you see that there are dislikes on the video, you're not watching a human being click dislike and like watching them have the moment where they realize they hate you when you are on a red carpet and a photographer decides not to take a photo of you you're watching someone click dislike for you as a person not even trying to like affect them in any way and so it is just hilariously degrading and it's also when you are there in real life, it's so different than the way it's presented on TV. It's so much less glamorous than the way it's presented. There are people with headphones coordinating the whole thing, running around sweating, screaming at each other, and you don't get to see that on television. And there are like, the photographers, when they don't want to take a photo of you, will literally just start texting on their phones in front of you while you stand there. And so there's this whole, all of the smaller moments that you don't get shown on TV are, to me, really fun to watch in real life. Well, I think there are so many people, uh, people here living vicariously through you, right? They're wishing that for your same or a similar rise to fame as you have. And yet there are these moments, these humbling moments, you know, it's hard, hard work mm -hmm. as we're hearing from you. So what do you say to them if, the, if they fall flat, at least, you know, the first time, second time? They're not doing it the way that they think that they should. Failure is always difficult. Uh, it's something I'm, I think what I'm motivated by is like a fear of failing. Uh, and I think a lot of people that do a lot of things are. Um, but it, failure is so important because it gives you such perspective. I remember I signed up for this um, sketch writing class at UCB in New York City um, before I started at the People's Improv Theater and somehow I talked my way into a level two writing class and I don't know how but I got there thinking like I got this and I remember bringing like my first sketch to the class and it got torn apart and I was mortified. I was like so mortified that I was afraid to go back every single class and I, I went to a couple more and I was still so terrified that I didn't go to like the last three classes and I was just like, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done with the whole theater. I'm gonna go over to the People's Improv Theater and see what I can get out of that. But for me, it was really helpful to learn about myself in that situation uh, in hindsight. It took me a few years and then when I was able to look back and see like, oh yeah, you were in over your head, you were too cocky about the situation, you didn't think about it, think about the reality of what it would be like being in that class and prep for it correctly. I think that gave me a, a perspective on how I approach situations now. I know how to prepare, I know how to think through and anticipate things that could happen. And I put myself in situations where I, I want to learn rather than shut down completely. Um, so failure, I think, can be really important and can be really motivating. And the best people are people that have overcome failure, that have really been able to look back at tragedy. I think it's why I, I do the podcast Not Too Deep, and it's really why I ask every single guest to tell me their worst panting story, but in three words or phrases, because that's truly a moment of failure. And to be able to talk about it and kind of take the, I guess, seriousness or the severity of it away from it by making fun of it in a way 
uh, makes you a better person, I think, and, and gives you, you know, you what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And I, I really believe that. Okay. Well, mm -hmm. she got Grace. She got style. She got to the other side of it. <laughs> Before I thank you, Grace, I just want to thank some of the people who helped make this production mm -hmm. possible. The Music Hall executive producer is Patricia Lynch. The Music Hall producer, Margaret Talcott. New Hampshire Public Radio president is Betsy Gardella. Our broadcast producer tonight is Logan Shannon, and our digital producer is Sarah Plord. The Music Hall production manager is Jana Morris. The Music Hall live sound and recording engineer, Ian Martin. The musical director and band, Bob Lord and Dreadnought. And please do join me in thanking Grace Helbig for joining us Thank tonight. Thank you, guys. It's a little blurry how the whole thing started. I don't even really know what you intended. Thought that you were cute and you could make me jealous. Put it down, so I put it down. Next thing that I know... Grace Helbig, author of Grace and Style, The Art of Pretending You Have It, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth, the writers on a New England stage. A co-production of New Hampshire Public Radio and the Music Hall in Portsmouth in collaboration with Yankee Magazine and River Run Books. You can take a look at our selfies with Grace and listen to more author interviews from the series at wordofmouthradio.org. Just click on the link for writers on a New England stage. And before we went on stage, we asked Grace Helbig about her creative process. Oh, I mean, social media is just the most difficult distraction. It's my hobby and my job all at once. And so it is so easy for me while I'm typing a chapter on a computer to just quietly open another tab and look at what people are saying on Twitter or shop at topshop.com. You can listen to the 10-Minute Writers Workshop with Grace Helbig. Again, wordofmouthradio.org. Just click on the 10-Minute Writers Workshop link. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this has been a special broadcast of Word of Mouth from NHPR. Wait, I could have really liked you. I bet, I bet that's why I keep on thinking about you. It's a shame. You said I was good, so I poured it down, so I I know I shouldn't say it, but my heart...